This is Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Hey, fellow spiritual beings, it's Mark. And this is Kelly with Radical Love Live. We have in the studio with us awesome Alicia Crosby. Welcome, Alicia. Thanks for Uh, having me. Absolutely. Just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to these days? Okay. So I'm a New Yorker, so like being a part of tonight's podcast and also tomorrow's show allows for me to come home. Mm -hmm. I'm from New York. I grew up between Queens and Harlem, so it feels good to be home. Thanks for letting me come home for a little bit. Yeah, welcome Absolutely, welcome. I am a product of the Black Baptist Church, but definitely Mm -hmm. would identify as ecumenically promiscuous mm. Um, mm. in that I've been around. <laughs> um, I've been to like, been in tons of churches and I'm telling you I've been around. I mean, we can start at the Black Baptist Church, definitely spent time in Black and multicultural evangelical spaces. I hung out with the Reform kids for a little bit, Evangelical Covenant Church, Nazarene, Methodist. I mean, like seriously, like we can keep oh, wow. going. Anglicans wow. were out there for a little bit, but I'm the daughter of a pastor. So um, I've been in, in or adjacent to church all of my life. And when I say adjacent to, I definitely root myself outside of the institutional church or congregational church at this point, mm-hmm. because at some point I recognized, oh wait, some of the challenges that I have aren't just because I need to just find different churches. I just need to maybe not be here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so like ultimately I got to the point where I realized that I wasn't finding God in ways that I needed to and finding communities in ways that I needed to within congregational space. And so I left. And that's been maybe the last six years of life, and it's Mm. been great. It's not without its challenges, but I think I'm spiritually healthier after having left the institutionalized congregational religious space. So being outside that space, has it changed the way that you define your spirituality? I think it has. I don't think that spirituality is so religious for me anymore. Like, Mm. it's not explicitly religious. I'll never forget, maybe at this point, it's like five years ago, somebody told me that I was spiritual but not religious, and I freaked out about it. I'm like, no! Mm. Like, I can't be that! Because, like, all my life that was seen as, it was a pejorative, right? It was an insult that people, like, threw around within religious spaces. But then I realized, oh, wait, no, no. That makes a lot of sense. Like, I just personally, even though I know people have meaning making with certain rituals and, you know, sacraments and whatever, like certain things don't have as much meaning to me personally. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't necessarily need the religious container to hold the fullness of my spirituality. And so, yeah, spiritual but not religious fits, Christian-ish fits. Uh (laughs) Would you consider yourself a follower of Christ? Um, I would probably use more Jesus language. And I know that some of that's like cultural, right? Like some people like Christ, some people like Jesus. Like I kick it with Jesus. You like Jesus. It's all good. I like Jesus. I'm a fan of the Holy Spirit. That's like still a big part of my spiritual identity. So yeah. Yeah, we like her here too. (laughs) (laughs) Now she's pretty dope. One of the things that I know that you do is curate spaces. And it's interesting because we're all about trying to create spaces, sacred spaces, spaces Mm -hmm. that are safe. What does that work entail? It depends on the context. I mean, different people require different space curation. And the reason I use the word curation versus create, like, well, space already exists. It's like, what do we do with it? And so, like, my work requires oftentimes inviting people into a process of meaning making, of figuring out, like, what works for them, what works for both the people who exist within that space currently and those who they're trying to attract, and then figuring out what security looks like. So safety language is kind of, like, 
ah, for me. Like, I'm, like, a little bit wary of it. Mm -hmm. Because too oftentimes people declare space as being safe without defining what that means or even asking people, like, what constitutes safety for them. I kind of hate safe space language. Okay. Specifically around the violence that gets enacted when you declare safety for another person. Wow. In my space curation, like, I walk communities through figuring out like, you know, well, what does security look like for you and how is that different from comfort? And then how do we cultivate a space that is reflexive and that can change and morph as we ask the people who come in what their needs are? So yeah, it's a little bit of what I do. Like in the past, I started a nonprofit. It was called Center for Inclusivity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I started it halfway through grad school with a friend. (laughs) He was working for a nonprofit. I was in school um, getting a master's in social justice from Loyola, Chicago. And yeah, we realized that there were lines of perceived difference that people weren't speaking across. And we're like, well, what if we help people cultivate space where they can just talk to one another? And that's how the organization started. And then eventually we got into this work of space curation. Is the work uh, undone? I would think there's a lot more work to be done. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is. And so I do this independently as a consultant. Working within an organization has its benefits, as does contracting. And so I've been able, since moving, so I actually decided to go back to school um, for some reason. (laughs) Um, That's why I'm in North Carolina, y'all. I go to Duke Divinity. Um, But that all being said, um, contracting allows for me to walk through organizations or academic institutions groups of whatever sorts like through this process for themselves sometimes it looks like strategic planning sometimes it looks like just kind of like a one and done like we just want to have you know talks about something so how do we unlock conversation around x y and z area when you started this work is there anything that you wish you knew then that you know now yeah um i think i wish i would have known more about the weight of language that we use And that language really does differ depending on context and identity and experiences. And then also how language can really be weaponized against different populations. I mean, like, safety is one, right? Like, that's a buzzwordy thing that sometimes gets, like, you know, used against people. So sometimes, like, when, if you're a person who has experienced marginalization because of your identities, people who maybe it is their intention to create spaces or cultivate spaces Mm -hmm. they'll tell you it's safe you tell them it's not they're like but know what we are and it's like you're not going to tell me what my experience is here another thing is people like to tell you that they're inclusive when they are excluding you it's Mm. like but we're inclusive like we're equitable we're safe they use these words but don't actually embody them and so i wish you know four or five years ago when i started this work that i understood that that was a part of what was happening because it could have changed maybe the way that I utilize these words. And it's not that I might not have used them at all, it's just I might have used them differently or with greater nuance that I now know to, to use them. One of the things when, say, an organization or a community is either divesting or trying to break down whatever systems are there and break something new, it often starts with listening. People say, you know, we're going to sit down, we're going to listen, we're going to really do a lot of listening, intent listening. And then there's often a moment of, well, then what? And then it's difficult for them to put this into a practical plan that they can actually tangibly employ. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you run into in the, the work that you do? 
Yes, and so I actually don't think it's like listening so much. It's the beginning of that process. I think it's actually question asking. And then the questions allow for the listening to occur. And if you actually are doing listening, you're going to ask like more questions and that'll help you be able to figure out where you go next. I think that that's a challenge that sometimes like organizations may face or institutions may face is that they're asking the kind of static questions that only let them get so far instead of being reflexive. And like sitting with the things that they've heard and then like kind of course correcting when they hear things to enter into like the new space. Right. Like if you have an understanding of where ultimately you want to go, you'll go there and you'll make the data fit versus like being responsive to like whatever it is that's come into your understanding after asking people what Mm -hmm. they need and want. And this is where I think that facilitation is such a difficult but also like highly skilled job not everybody's like meant to be a facilitator even though a lot of people try to do facilitation work so i like jokingly call myself a professional question asker Mm -hmm. because yeah i mean i think it takes good facilitation takes being inquisitive but it also takes being intuitive because it's not just like you're asking it's you paying attention to the things that are said and then what lies beneath what's being said and sometimes body language and even hearing the things that haven't been uttered because that's going to determine like what that organization or entity needs ultimately. So when we um, think about church, mm-hmm. question asking, mm-hmm. not a lot being done in most denominations, right? Mm-hmm. And if the ones who do ask, they're scared of the answers. Mm-hmm. The answers mean that you have to pull a thread. One of the <laughs> best, best analogies that I've ever heard of... Um, of like a theological question is like pulling a thread in a tapestry. Mm -hmm. Like when you pull the thread, you don't know when that thread pulling is gonna stop and the entire thing may unravel. But if the thread is loose, I mean, some of us like we're just really distracted (laughs) and like reach for it, like gotta pull, gotta pull, gotta pull. But I think that there's beauty in that, right? Like if you're willing to just kind of see where things go, there's a lot that you can get to. And even if the tapestry comes undone, it doesn't mean that it wasn't beautiful. It doesn't mean it didn't have utility. It just means that you get to create something new. There's a tradition of that that I don't know that modern, at least modern Christian cultures Mm -hmm. explore, which is that idea of testing the text, Mm -hmm. pulling at ideas, challenging the ideas. I think of like Psalms and Ecclesiastes and these Mm -hmm. these old wisdom traditions where Mm -hmm. they're like, none of this makes any sense. Mm -hmm. It's like, well... You're right, it doesn't. It doesn't. But then you can come through on the other (laughs) side in a place of mystery Mm -hmm. and be able to live there Mm -hmm. maybe with more freedom than before. And I think the thing that you note, like that you just shared is like actually interesting because these aren't Christian texts. Those things are in the Hebrew scriptures. That's right. So like this is about Judaism asks these questions and there's thread pulling that happens within that tradition that just in modern Christianity, it's not there. Like people aren't asking because there's a degree of like absolutism and surety that people like kind of put their hope in, put their confidences in. Some of that's about power and and maintaining and keeping that power. We're just certain things won't be asked. You said you were, what was it? Uh, um, promiscuous? Yes, I'm ecumenically promiscuous. <laughs> ecumenically, I love that. <laughs> so in your promiscuity, yes. <laughs> what was it that you were seeking that you weren't finding? Community. Wow. Yeah, like I remember. Put it right out there, community. That's what it was. I was looking for my people. And, you know, there are people who I've definitely found along the way, but like ultimately the fullness of the community that I wanted couldn't be found in any one place. Hmm. And for some people, that's not the case. For some folks, like they find a congregational home and like that's their family. 
But like when I look at like the people who I love most in the world, who are deeply invested in me and in my well-being, they come from all these different traditions. They come from different traditions, different cultures, different backgrounds. And I was never going to find them all in one place. And for some people, like, that's the case. They can go to, like, a church. They can go to a local house of worship if they, even they find themselves outside of the Christian context. Mm. And that's where their, like, crew, their beloveds are going to all be, or many of them will be. Mm. That's just not my story. When you are consulting with organizations mm-hmm. about inclusivity, what are some of the, the challenges or even the myths that you run up against as you're trying to do this work? Mm. I think sometimes a big myth is the myth of people's, like, inerrant goodness, folks don't like to admit their complicity and harm. That's like a really difficult thing for a lot of people to name because it means, well, one, having to change. Also admitting, I mean, it's it's humbling. Hmm. Like you haven't gotten it right. And I think particularly within progressive culture, and if I'm keeping it 100 in like white progressive cultures, there are ways in which people are uncomfortable sharing that they get it wrong because it makes them feel like the people who they've othered. I think it's so easy to point fingers to people who have ideas that fall outside of ours, right? Whether they be like, and in this case, like being super conservative, right? Or fundamentalist that people like would describe them as being. It's easy to say like, oh, they've got it wrong. But it's harder like to point the finger back at yourself and say like, oh no, I still mess up. Like I have to like do internal work to like check my bias Mm -hmm. and name the ways in which I've gotten it wrong and hurt people and have been complicit not only in just like, their pain interpersonally but also systemically it's a very uncomfortable thing for people to sit with and so there's a lot of denial i mean i think about like you know using the example of like racism right Mm -hmm. it's easy for someone to be engaged in in racist or racially bigoted behavior but that doesn't necessarily make them a racist it's not like they are like forming themselves around like these principles like they're not out there, like, actively engaged in, like, white supremacy or in, like, targeted hateful actions towards, like, people of a particular group, right? But it doesn't mean that they don't still engage in practices, like, where they can, like, still create conditions for harm for someone else. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't have to be be out here, like, using racial slurs to have engaged in racist behavior. Things like people's bodily orientations. Like, I mean, I've heard stories, I've, like, seen it happen, like, where... A good progressive may be, let's say, like, a good progressive white woman may be in an elevator with a black man and just hold her purse a little bit tighter, right? Some of this stuff is unconscious and it's reflexive and it's based on the stories that you've heard growing up or just, like, mm. the things that have just kind of been passed on. Even if they weren't necessarily explicitly said, they're just kind of like these, like, kind of one-off things that you've heard or, like, biases that you don't even know that you have sometimes. That doesn't mean that that's any less racist. It's still racist. But you don't have to necessarily be a racist. That's not the totality of who you are, and you're not actively trying to seed into, like, that identity in the ways that other people are. When I I lived in St. Louis for a a few years ago, I went Mm -hmm. back home. Mm -hmm. And I was in St. Louis when Michael Brown happened. Mm -hmm. It broke my heart to be back there. Mm -hmm. Why my heart was broken, obviously, for him but also for the community who could not identify why there was such horror and trauma around that, you know, especially for people within the St. Louis community. They were like, well, he he had it coming because he had done something wrong and they could not understand why that was, I don't know what other word to use, but wrong. Like Mm -hmm. that was just wrong. And they were in there. They're like, and it's not because I'm a racist, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a racist. And I'm like, but, but yet you, 
are and you don't know it. Mm-hmm. And it broke my heart because people couldn't even identify mm-hmm. that they were a part of the problem. If you're white living in the suburbs mm-hmm. and uh, you know everybody looks the same, you your kids all go to the same school and everything else, and you're completely detached from mm-hmm. what that community of, uh, that Michael lived in in Ferguson mm-hmm. is completely different to them in form, and they couldn't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, well, if they would just do more for themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's all these tropes. I mean, like we're even seeing it right now come out some like within you know this presidential primary season especially mm-hmm. like with michael bloomberg having entered the race mm-hmm. i mean i'm a native new yorker who like grew up underneath mike bloomberg's new york and so i know what it's like for friends and then eventually for students because i became an educational advocate during my time here i know what it's like to see young black and brown men targeted by the police and like what that does to their psyches when you're 15 years old and like yeah. you don't know whether or not today is going to be yet another day of your week where you're like forced up against walls and like terrorized by the police. And what, you know, folks I'm hearing say um, and witnessing say like online and even people I've had conversations with in the past, it's like, well, people should just comply with the police. It's like, you don't (laughs) like what? (laughs) Or like they shouldn't have been doing anything wrong. But like, why are you assuming that someone's done something wrong to have police interactions? Like this part of the the terror of like this project is that people were just going around like living their lives and were being accosted by the NYPD. I mean, it's not just the NYPD. They're stop and frisk, you know, policies that take place all around the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, but New York was particularly egregious in the way in which um, they, they utilize this policy in practice. Yeah. But yeah, like people just feel like, oh, well they had it coming. Or they shouldn't have been doing anything wrong, or they should have been in not in the wrong place. The wrong place is your neighborhood. It's coming from your school. It's being somewhere where people would assume a black or brown body shouldn't be. Like people don't understand how those things, those assumptions that they make of others, are prejudiced. Yeah, you know, one conversation that I've had with other white people about racism is around labels. I remember back in the '90s when what was politically correct at the time was an attempt at colorblindness. Let's just <laughs> let's just treat everybody the same and then it'll be okay, mm-hmm. right? And obviously it was a disaster mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. approach things mm-hmm. that way, to mm-hmm. not recognize the differences of exp- of experience mm-hmm. between different kinds of mm-hmm. people and the, the labels and calling things what they are mm-hmm. is really important. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's still some carryover from that period of like, why isn't everything the same? Why doesn't everybody get the same kind of job? Why doesn't everybody get the same kind of That's house? That's right. Pull well, yourself up from your bootstraps or whatever that is. Well, and people don't even realize that, that our experiences are like radically different in this country. Mm-hmm. I really came to understand that like white folks really don't get it sometimes <laughs> over a conversation about like cabs. So this is like maybe like three years ago when like Uber and Lyft, like other ride sharing platforms were expanding and there was protest because of some of the practices that these companies were using and how they were exploiting riders, not riders, but drivers. Drivers, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And I remember having like um, white friends just be like, well, we should just boycott them all. We shouldn't use them. And this, that, and the third. I was like, okay, so hold on. (laughs) I hear you. But... You have to understand, like, these 
rideshare companies have actually helped sort of even the playing field. They, they've been a lot more equitable, like in allowing for transportation to be in places where it wasn't readily accessible before. Mm-hmm. And so like you're saying to just like protest against these companies, not understanding that there are cab companies that wouldn't go into like black and Latinx neighborhoods. You're not understanding that like buses stop running in our neighborhoods at certain times of the day. And like, not like at night, no, like four o'clock in the afternoon, you don't have this bus anymore. Whereas, and this was in a predominantly black neighborhood that I lived in, where I lived in the like, you know, mostly white north side, 24 hours a day, like constant buses, trains, like there was no challenge around transportation access. Then, so when we're having this conversation online, he's like, oh, wait, like this is a thing. It's like, absolutely. And you have to also understand that even, even if you are able to get these things in your neighborhood, sometimes they won't stop for you based on the color of your skin. But this is something I also brought into conversation in that like digital exchange a few years ago. And I had friends, like some of which were twice my age, they had never heard these things before because our realities are shielded from one another. I mean, I think that this is why one of the reasons why I appreciate like the digital commons so much in social media, because it allows for this sort of information sharing to take place so people can actually have insight into each other's worlds. Wow. So many people talk about how social media is dividing us mm-hmm. because we're constantly having to comment on things quickly and mm-hmm. arguing with one another. But it's great to hear that there are at least some spaces where the kind of exchange that's supposed to be happening mm-hmm. is happening. Yeah. I mean, like, I think about, like, how much of, like, my world has shifted. So much of it has happened because of online space. Like, I've asked questions and, like, more than anything, I've kind of, like, shut my mouth and paid attention to what other people were saying. And so for people who have identities that are dissimilar from mine, who have experiences that I don't experience, when I pay attention to the things that they say and the things that they share and they're going through, I learn a lot. And so it helps me adjust, like, the way that I orient myself in the world in order to make the world a little bit more accommodating and acceptable and celebratory of who they are. Quick question. Mm -hmm. White privilege? Mm -hmm. We don't get that, do we? Mm. No. White privilege, white fragility. um, But I think that a lot of it is because people don't want to admit that whiteness is real, that whiteness has culture. Uh, Um, A few years ago, I... um, facilitated a dialogue of about whiteness and it was like really interesting. So when I started my nonprofit, I my co-founder was um, a straight white man. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from my like black queer female self. Mm-hmm. And he actually got sick that night. And then I had to like facilitate this dialogue about whiteness with white people. It was very interesting. And I say interesting in that it was such a tender sacred space because it was one of the first times that I actually saw white people struggle with the premise of whiteness and admit that, oh, wait, this is a thing. Whiteness does have a culture. People sometimes lose distinction of who they are and their ethnic heritages when they opt into whiteness. And we talked like really, really like dynamically and fully and honestly and vulnerably about like what whiteness and white culture is and how it had effects on them as well as others. Mm -hmm. When you say opt into whiteness, is that akin to um, assimilation? Is that kind of? Um, I mean, and there are like books written on this, but there are populations who weren't seen as white yeah. who are now seen as white. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it usually means some type of like sacrifice in order for you know people to be white. Sometimes that means them losing their Irishness, their Germanness, their yeah. Britishness, like whatever 
it is like they kind of give that up to opt into the privileges of whiteness, particularly within our cultural context. Oh, wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Why are we not having more conversation around this? Or am I just have my head in the sand and I'm not aware of these kinds of conversations? Because what we're doing right now, just recording, this is a powerful dialogue, right? It brings out, first of all, we have to deal with the reality of the conversation. But more importantly, it's like realizing the value of each individual person as they are, that there is no requirement to assimilate or to be like, you know, why can't we just find the beauty of the individual, you know, that we are all... As I, my personal way I look at it is that we're all children of the divine, however you want to describe that. Mm-hmm. You know, I go on and talk about, you know, spiritual beings in a human form. But mm-hmm. the point is, is that we're all family. Oh, but we should be. We should be, but <laughs> damn, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but even like that notion of family, like it shifts context. It, it means different things to different people. But I think that that's, that's the challenge. I think this is part of why we don't have these conversations is because... In our culture, in Western culture, and specifically within U.S. American culture, we like to put things in boxes. Mm. Mm. We like to like have things sure in the do. box with the bow, like yeah. wrapped up nice and pretty. Like we don't like a mess, and that's the thing. Like <laughs> if we had these conversations more, I mean, one, it would lead to a lot more conversations and challenges and conflicts. And people would have to be a little less conflict-averse and understand that just because things aren't resolved doesn't mean that there's something wrong. And I don't think Mm. that just there's not enculturation around that. Like, it's just not a cultural priority where we can leave things unresolved, where people can, like, have, you know, a clash and it just be undone for a while and Mm. just be unsettled. Like, folks don't know how to deal with that. That's true. We don't. We want. Oh, we always strive for resolution. We want it in a box with a bow on it. Resolution, right. solutions, instead of responses. Yeah. yeah. There, there are, I think, other ways that we can approach things in life, like where things are responsive, where they're reflexive, where, and it means that it's constantly something's constantly in process. Mm-hmm. But that means that folks have to be okay with things being undone. And I don't know if that's like a pro- cultural priority in like U.S. American and like society. I don't think it is. So can I toss this a, it's almost rhetorical, I think, but think um, the decline in church. Mm-hmm. Okay. We know it's real. Mm-hmm. Lots of people are freaking out about it. Mm-hmm. And you said yourself, I, I lean like you, um, spiritual. Mm-hmm. I don't like being boxed in as religious, although I'm part of a particular, you know, mainline denomination and I love my denomination and I love my family and my community mm-hmm. but yet I'm pretty far out there on the edge Kelly's just agreeing you know I'm way out there <laughs> but I am not ashamed of that anymore it's good I'm still a part of a family mm-hmm. the point I'm getting at because we live in this culture where things are supposed to be in these containers and nicely bound up mm-hmm. Are we actually in a shift within within church where maybe this is one of the reasons why people just can't connect to church anymore is because mm-hmm. they don't want to be put into the box? It's it's interesting, like, looking at churches and which churches are decline. Mm-hmm. Because not all churches are in decline. There are definitely churches that are, like, on the upswing. Yeah. Many of them happen to be, like, you know, 
churches of racial minorities, like at least within the U.S. Because like, you know, there are plenty of black churches and Latinx churches and Asian churches that are thriving. Mm -hmm. But some of that has to do with like cultural preservation, right? So as people are like working to divest from from whiteness to to connect more deeply like with their racial and ethnic heritages, there is strength in like those churches. Mm-hmm. I think that mainline churches are declining. Evangelical churches, to some extent, are declining. I say to some extent because not all. Right. There's still a boom because people are finding like like-minded folks like within those spaces. But I do think that it's it's an interesting age in faith. I don't want to necessarily limit this to uh, to Christianity because I've had conversations with friends who are adherents of other traditions. Yeah, yeah. And they're seeing like similar shifts, but just that aren't spoken about as broadly mm-hmm. because of the way that Christian hegemony works in our culture, right? Like Christianity is like kind of held up above all. Yeah. And yeah. all of the attention and the spotlight is shown on it. Um, and, the, the, and the fear. Yeah. It's like uh, the way that we live is going away. Yeah. 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 Um, but that being yeah. said, I mean, I think that people are just honest about the fact that they're like complex persons and that complexity means that their spirituality needs to be held more complexly. And so it may be that like, yes, like they still are followers of Jesus, but they also are like connecting to like Buddhist practice yeah. because either if there's a centering calm that's like present there or sometimes it's about, again, the reclamation of heritage and things that were formerly demonized in churches that you may have been in before you're going back and saying like, you know what, now this is mine. Like, I'm going to reclaim this. Like, I'm not going to like believe what was passed on to me about this and people like trying to shame other ways of like knowing God, knowing mystery, like knowing the spirit, not doing that anymore. And sometimes that means that they have to leave the institutional space. But I do wonder what's going to come in this season, right? Mm -hmm. Because people are going to at some point need to like reconvene again, because folks are ultimately looking for community. It's not just that they're looking for God, they're looking for manifestations of God, and that often comes when we're in like relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's gonna look like congregational church for many people. I think it'll still exist, right? Like I don't think the institution of church is ever gonna go away. But I think that there are other options that are gonna emerge, right? Like, so I think about dinner churches and the rise in popularity of like these movements where people are coming together to talk about scripture, kind of like in the Acts model, right? They're sitting around, like, talking about, like, faith and life and doing so around meals. And, like, that's spiritually fulfilling for them. You know, you have other churches that are, like, very intentionally meeting in, like, bars Mm -hmm. or in, like, in people's homes. And it's that kind of inward turning towards one another. Like, they're kind of getting away from the, like, here's a speaker on a dais telling you things. They're going to a place where they're like, okay, so let's exchange. And maybe sometimes somebody shares something. Sometimes, like, the collective shares. But I do wonder if more of that collectivist um, impulse, instinct, is going to be something that more folks take a hold of because... I think people are longing for one another and like models like that will allow for those needs to be satiated. In preparation for the program that we're doing tomorrow night, I was reading through some books and I picked up um, Rachel Held Evans Mm -hmm. searching for Sunday Mm -hmm. and was rereading some sections Mm -hmm. of that. One of the the questions when they decided to leave one of the churches that they left was she said, Mm -hmm. well, who's going to bring us casseroles? Mm -hmm. 
It wasn't about theology. It wasn't mm-hmm. about any of that. It's when you're sick or when you had just had a baby, who's mm-hmm. going to come visit your house? Mm-hmm. Who's going to be your friends? Who's going to be your family? Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think those are the things that, that people often long for, that tangible <laughs> manifestation of God. Yeah, well, we forget another. about that, don't we? Manifestation. It's, 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 it's not a word that's used um, often enough, I think. Why, what, is, what is the living example of our, of our spirituality through community? What is that? What is that? Well, so didn't Jesus say, they will know that you're mine because of the way that you love each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and there, I think that there are people who are asking that question actively, and they're physically reorienting themselves. And that's why we're seeing the church declines, yeah. mm-hmm. is because that connection, I mean, so like part of that, that, that ecumenical promiscuity for me, like I actually worked in a mega church for a, a stint. And one of the things that concerns me most about many mega churches is the way that they grow up instead of out. And so they, there's a way that like people get lost in those spaces where when you have thousands upon thousands of members, people aren't connecting with one another. And even when they're like connection ministries, and I was like over one of these, like at that church some time ago, but people still get lost. Like if you don't have folks who are intentionally watching after folks and making sure that they get plugged in and making sure that they meet people who they might like share like life experiences or interest or like whatever with, then folks are just like, they're just a number. Mm -hmm. They're just like a butt in the seat. And that's not, I think, what the family of God is supposed to be. (laughs) I don't think that's like what Jesus wanted in starting his church. Like there's a belonging to, to one another that was foundational, I think, in the Gospels and in, like, the subsequent, like, Christian texts. It's like, how do we get this right where we, like, work to honor the law to care for one another? Because that's what this is about. And I think that, like, when we get in, like, the the butt-in-the-seat model, that gets lost. And I think that people are just tired and they want to belong. They want to know that someone's going to bring them the casserole, that someone's going to bring them chicken soup when they're sick, that someone's going to like step up and like help them like raise their families together, help them hold their dreams. And I think that that is happening, but it's happening with people who may never declare a specific faith identity, but they're talking at brunch and they're finding themselves in online forums. And they may never, like the online thing is like, fascinating looking at like faith communities that have arisen like over the last like 10 15 years with people who didn't they didn't even know each other's real names in the beginning of like online space cultivation mm-hmm. but like would pray for one another and find ways to like maintain presence even from a great distance and i think that there are just ways that people are going to continuously work to fulfill that need for community for one another and i think that's the church age that we're in and it's going to continue to come I mean, I'm wondering where I'll go tomorrow night. Just, I'm just paying attention to my gut and my spirit. And mm. there's some things I'm probably not, I'm not going to know until I enter into the space. Because there's something about being in a space and just feeling the energy of a space that like allows like words to come. Yeah. Have you so, been to Have you been to the cathedral before? So the cathedral actually plays a really interesting part in my healing journey, which may or may not come out tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's actually where I found my first therapist. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. The counseling program that the church yeah. has, yeah. That's yeah. how I found my first therapist. Wow. Oh, okay. And so when I was, you know, dealing with, like, a lot of lot of religious trauma, yeah. but also in a place, like, just in my faith formation where I was, like, more conservative and I thought, thought I had to have a Christian counselor, mm-hmm. yeah, I called them, and, like, that's how I started, like, in my journey. Curious about that. Yeah. So um, Christian counseling, mm-hmm. did you find it helpful? 
Bad counselor, yes. Okay. Because there there were certain things I didn't have to explain about context. There were certain things that I didn't have to explain about pain. And then also, like, faith wasn't the only thing that was at play there. Like, there, there were some barriers, like, to relationships that I had seen, like, in myself. Like, I was, like, super avoidant and allowing myself to, like be trusting in certain relationships. And because, like, I was in a a space in my head where I thought that, like, I had to share faith to be able to speak to someone about something, Mm -hmm. like, I needed that. And, I mean, that way I did need the institution because, like, I thought that at that point, like, a secular therapist, like, wouldn't help me be able to unlock some things. And maybe at that place in my life it was true. Like, right now, like, my, my current therapist and I, we're totally, like, in different, like, places spiritually in terms of, like, what's formed us. Like, she's not a Christian. Like, and it's actually funny. We had a conversation about, like, about communion recently, and I had to explain, like, what it was. But, like, having, like, non-Christian therapists have actually helped me, like, arrive at different conclusions because, like, they're not coming out of that container. Mm -hmm. And so, like, there's, like, all these other things that they ask and insights that they have that someone who, quite frankly, shares in the faith hasn't had or asked. There's a reason why I ask because you shared a little bit about this. And I think about the people myself included who had a lot of shame to process because of church mm-hmm. and they just don't know how to deal with it. And they just have closed that off, but yet mm-hmm. they have, have that. They may not even be conscious of that. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was asking, is this a benefit for somebody that's like, they get to a point of realization that there's, they, they should do something. Yeah. It's, it's tricky because mm-hmm. I think that religious trauma in general isn't something that's, it's something that's becoming, people are becoming more aware of like religious trauma being a distinct form of trauma. So like I sat in rooms like with therapists and counselors and had conversations about like their formation, like, right? Like when you were in school, like what were you taught about religious violence and trauma? And then I asked questions about like their own work around their own traumas. And it was just really interesting to see that people hadn't actually done their own work and also weren't being informed like within schools about this. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's starting slowly but surely to shift as more research is being done. Like you have things now like religious trauma syndrome, right? Yeah. Where people are speaking specifically about some things are kind of related to like post-traumatic stress you know syndromes but like they're not exactly the same because like there's a religious component that really complicates things i am a victim of that Mm -hmm. and so there's more there's more work that's being done there but just because you work with a faith engaged or faith-based counselor doesn't mean that they have the skills and sometimes quite frankly they might like compound your harm because of their own biases that they haven't checked I mean, honestly, this is the real reason why I decided to go back to school at this point in time. And so I was, like, really interested in, like, understanding the phenomena of, like, religious abuse, violence, and trauma. And understanding, like, the theological, like, underpinnings of it. And so that's why I actually went to Duke. I'm getting a master's in theological study because we all are experiencing primary and secondary religious trauma, like everyone in our system. And it's because of what's happening at our societal level Mm -hmm. and what's happening legally. And so the deeply held religious beliefs, whether or not, regardless of how they're rooted by our lawmakers, are influencing policy. And people are being forced to adhere to like one person's belief system and that's creating conditions for trauma and yes, like at a socio-political level and i don't think that that's being spoken about no, broadly and being put in those terms do you think they're doing it on purpose that people actually realize that they can manipulate oh manipulate religion yes but i don't think that they're doing it in a way that they they don't understand it as being violence they see it as 
you know, there are people who see it as being a form of Christian dominionism. Correct. Or, well, yes, there's mm-hmm. that. Or some would even take it to the basic level that I'm just trying to save them because I love them. Save them because you love them. Save or... Um, seeing the will of God, right? And like, and not understanding <laughs> yes. the ways in which like you articulate the will of God and how that encroaches on another person's agency. Oh, in yes. any in any other context, if we talk about how one person's agency like comes into conflict with another and actually like, forces itself, we, we define that as an assault. We have define that as abuse. We're not yet doing that like with our discourse on religion. No, we're not. And that's part of like, I mean, it's really a large part of why I decided to go back to school because I'm really wow. interested in this. And want to like speak about it and talk about this a lot more. Are there others that are in this space? Yeah, there are. Um, I actually have done some work over the last few years with these incredible professors up at Marquette, and they're specifically looking at um, religious trauma and sacramental shame within LGBTQ populations. So, um, doctors Dawn Moon and Teresa Tobin are, have done like a long-term study specific to LGBTQ persons and looking at like the ways that religious trauma has been enacted in their worlds. Wow. But there are researchers like all over the country. There are folks who, you know, aren't published. Like I have a really good friend who is um, in the Greensboro area and she's a counselor who's looking to potentially do PhD work to be able to speak about this more because these are the things that come out in her counseling work. How do we get this out to the folks, you know, more than just out of academia and bring it out into the greater consciousness? What's that going to take? What's that look like? I mean, I think things like podcasts help, like conversations like this definitely help, like, you know, using forums like what you've cultivated with Radical Love Live, that helps. Like the more the people speak about this and these things in accessible ways that like they're not locked in institutions. I mean, like, Dawn and Teresa have been, like, awesome in that, like, they, they really, like, open with their papers and go to, like, conferences. But so they do, they've done a lot of work with, like, some of, like, the queer Christian conferences in sharing what they've learned there. The more that people work to make their work find its way to the public, they just, it's got to be accessible. You know, I was reading in your, your bio that, you know, that kind of start when you were 16, you were back in the Baptist church. Mm-hmm. And what would you go back and tell that self Mm-hmm. now knowing all that you that you know and experiencing what you've experienced mm-hmm. one i would tell her that she was super queer <laughs> and to embrace it and to celebrate it and to not like shove that part of herself down um for anyone and also to like celebrate to celebrate your inquisitive spirit like i've always been a question asker like since i was like a little girl and i've always been like kind of a challenger right it's not even just to ask questions a challenge and it's something I've done all my life. Like one of my favorite stories of self was I was seven in the in this Baptist church that I was like formed in. And there was like a new pastor who came in um, after the founding pastor of that church had passed away. And he started changing like different things like within the congregation. One of them being that if you weren't baptized, you couldn't have communion. And I had been taking communion all my life. And it's actually still one of my favorite things about the church like sitting at the table, like, or just seeing the table where everything's there and everything's equitable. And like, it's just, it's beautiful to me. And so little seven-year-old Alicia was not having it. And so I went up to the pastor and I'm like, you know, you said that this is in the Bible and I looked and it's not there. (laughs) So either you're going to have to show me where it is, or you're going to have to say this is coming from somewhere else. (laughs) What kind of response did you get to that? um, I got ignored, but actually they actively would keep communion from me. And so like people would like put plates above my head. Like it was like a conscious thing because I would go for it. 
and for years and like and so the thing is they try it was like coercion to like try to get me to be baptized uh-huh. and even at seven i'm like you know baptism is a thing between me and god it's uh-huh. got nothing to do with the rest of y'all and so actually in protest because i was also that kid in protest i didn't get baptized until i was 20 and my baptism it was like the most me thing ever like i got baptized in my pastor's pool in like the like the the beginning parts of summer and we had a barbecue afterwards I just went swimming in the in the pool. <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, even at seven, I knew that spiritual coercion shouldn't be a thing. At seven, I knew that, like, people shouldn't be barred from, like, having access to the celebration of God's family. And I pushed back. I asked questions. And so, but, you know, adults don't always like the questions that kids ask because it means that they would have to reconcile some things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And, yeah, and, do that every day, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that being said, like, I would go back and tell my former self, like, my 16-year-old self, like, yeah, keep asking. Even though, like, I found that resolve, like, despite, like, what the adults in my world did. And they were definitely adults, like, who encouraged me to, like, continue to, like, question but, like, I would, like, tell her, like, go, like, keep asking, keep pushing, keep knocking. Because that's how walls fall. It's how doors get opened. It how ha- It's how opportunity flows, not only just for you, but for other people. Yeah. So queer as hell, keep asking questions. Wow. Good rules to live by. <laughs> this one I borrowed from the actor's studio. Mm-hmm. If there's a heaven, mm-hmm. what would you like God to say once you get there? You've loved my people well. I mean, everything that I do, like, in my life, like, that's what it comes back to. I just want people to feel like they're cared for, Mm. that they're not alone, that someone cares enough to, like, fight for them, to create space for them, to push for them. That's all I want God to say to me. It's like, you love my people well. Mm. Thank you so much. This is really a wonderful conversation. It's great to get insights into what you're doing. And Thanks for inviting me, y'all. Absolutely. Thank you, Alicia. That was very empowering. (laughs) thanks so much for listening to radical love live if you're a first-time listener or you'd like to hear more you can listen to our podcast archive including recordings of our live series on most major podcast platforms your support is essential if you like what you're hearing and appreciate the content of this program please visit our website at radicallove.live to find out ways that you can help this project with your time and your resources As always, we'd like to thank our supporters, including the Congregation of St. Savior, as well as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And we'd also like to thank the Episcopal Church Office of Communication for their continued support. Thanks for listening to Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes.